The Gospel Coalition has released a set of new debates where believers of good faith just disagree on some stuff. They started with homeschooling and education. That got me down quite the wormhole on this week's Corey Truax Show. say wormhole, I don't mean the entire show this week is going to be on that topic, but we will certainly start there. I also have some audio from a recent Matt Chandler sermon I think it's important for you to hear. I will try my best to remember to get through our chronological reading of the Bible content. I want to talk about the idea of American exceptionalism because of a tweet thread I saw, and maybe a little bit more, that and a lot more, on this week's Corey Truax Show on his radio talk, wherever you find, <laughs> on his radio talk, wherever you find podcasts, I meant to say. I am your host, Corey Truax. I get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church at 1030 on Sunday mornings as their pastor for teaching. I am not preaching again, if the Lord sees, keeps it that way, until Easter morning, resurrection morning. So we'd love to have you out to hear our regular teaching pastor. And as we start something new coming up here soon, we'd love to get you there. Here's where I started. I like these Gospel Coalition debates if you're not familiar with the Gospel Coalition, it's almost 20 years old now. Maybe it is 20 years old now. Started by Tim Keller and Don Carson, one other person I can't think of. But basically reformed guys, reformed in their soteriology, how people are saved, reformed in the, in the reformed tradition of, let's go with Luther, Calvin, those guys. And that goes across spectrum. Some Presbyterian folks and some Baptist folks and some others are included there. There's some Lutherans in there. You can find several types of people inside the Gospel Coalition. The idea is Christians across denominations and traditions being unified for resources and strategies for the Gospel to go forward. And they do a lot now, right? They do publishing and they review every Christian thing that happens. Their criticism usually comes... They, they earn some of their criticism, but their criticism is usually that they're too soft, uh, the the one I the one I said here recently is that they uh, they punch right and they whisper left. So when people to their right make a mistake or do something that they disapprove of, they're really mean and really clear about it. When the left does something insane, I'm talking about the theological left, the American political left, just anything that's associated with left wingism generally. That they're they they pedal quite kindly. They'll call it incorrect, but they they they're they're much more conciliatory in their tone. That's usually where their criticism comes from. Just to give you the lay of the land, that's the Gospel Coalition. I'm actually kind of a fan of most of the stuff they do. I think it's high quality. Last year, they released six debates where believers in orthodoxy would disagree on something, and they did it well. They did it respectfully, and most of the time it was entertaining for people like me. They did one on guns, what Christians should think about gun ownership in the United States, and because they had a British Christian debated, it was, it was interesting because they have a different relationship to guns. They talked about you know, how we talk about sexuality. There was a lot of good ones last year. I just finished watching the first one of this season, and it was about homeschooling versus Christian schooling versus public schooling, and two very smart people that I like a lot that I was already very familiar with told their stories. One mom of five whose kids all went to public school, one dad of six whose kids all went through homeschool and Christian school, and they debated it. It was fine. They both made great points. Some of the internet is making are unfairly treating them and clipping them out of context. I would just tell you, go watch the whole thing. It's worth watching. 
my stance generally on that has almost always been you should educate your kids. And there's no such thing as homeschooling. Let me finish this thought. There's no such thing as homeschooling. There's no such thing as Christian schooling. And there's no, there's no such thing as public schooling. There is your home and how you do it. There's that Christian school and how they do it. And there's that public school and how they do it. So the uh, some, some of you might be very bad at homeschooling. Just bottom line. And you really need a co-op or, or you're, you're going to really... Uh, you're going to harm your kids. They're not going to be ready for the world around them. Uh, there are Christian schools I know that put the label on there and make their kids go to chapel, and they are it's a, that's a laughing stock. They're not a Christian school. The kids behave hor- horrifically in and out of the, out of the school. Uh, it's basically something that parents did to keep their kids from going to public school, try to shield them from stuff, or maybe because their kid wasn't quite talented enough to play on a sports team or get on the stage for theater, and so the Christian school was a smaller pool of talent to compete against. Charlotte and Atlanta, Nashville, some big higher higher dollar areas are full of these places that call themselves Christian schools, but they do not comport themselves that way often. Now, uh, that's that's some Christian schools. I could also name you some rock solid Christian schools who disciple their kids. They do the classical model of education, and but I'll go ahead and say it. Yeah, there are some public schools that aren't uh, that that aren't Greenville High downtown. They aren't. Uh, I shouldn't name any specifics. I'll stop doing that. But there are, there are some decent public schools where your kids are going to be exposed to some people that you may not want them exposed to, but generally the environment isn't antagonistic and the the curriculum isn't trying to beat the Christianity out of your kid. That's true. There's no, So there's no such thing as the public schools, the Christian schools, the home schools. All of it can be done well and all of it can be done poorly. I somewhat know that because of what I've done professionally for 15 years in higher education. I have run across from all three settings, Jesus-loving, well-discipled kids. And I have run across the opposite. I'll just be kind. In all three settings, I've run across super smart kids. In all three settings, I've run across the opposite. I've run across really well-adjusted kids, socially, social skills, in all three settings, and I've run across the opposite of that as well. So I, I am not the uh, I'm not Matt Walsh here. I'm not some folks. He's the host on Daily Wire. That's just straight up. The, the public school system's a hellscape. Get your kids out. Uh, granted, we've seen some hellscape public school systems. I think the the one they exposed in Northern Virginia was that. There's there probably isn't a good public school system that's not trying to beat the Christianity out of your kid in most big pub uh, in most big cities. Uh, in a lot of let's go with uh, liberal parts of the country. Yeah, they're. They're actively de-discipling your children when you drop them off. Yeah, that's that's probably the case. Man, I didn't want to go this far on this topic. This is not where I was going. Um, all right, so that's always where I've been on education. Uh, every parent's got to figure it out for themselves and uh, choose what's best for their kid, prioritize their kid, make whatever sacrifices necessary to see that their child is, one, discipled in the things of biblical thinking, and two, equipped to contribute to the world around them and to be really good at taking care of their family, contributing to their household, uh, being someone who's impressive at work, because we want our Christian young men and Christian young women to be people really well-equipped. We want them to be the smartest, because we believe in cultivating the mind. The, this is a gift. Our minds, our intellects are gifts, and we want to cultivate those. All right, so that's where it started. The Gospel Coalition's debate. If you have thoughts on my thoughts on how to educate your kids, you can do that. It's Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Also find me anywhere you do on social media. So that's part one. This got me thinking about this. 
Uh, if you were going to put a title on what I'm tell- talking to you about, it's the kids are not all right, right? So I was hearing stories the uh, from that debate and then started hearing some more of this throughout the week. I think it was Yahoo that published the story that I found because I was started to see this trend on Instagram, a little bit on TikTok. I don't spend a lot of time on TikTok, but I saw some of this. That amongst the middle school and high school set, there was a trending new uh, phrase called the sticky sock vacation. I didn't know what that meant, and so I Googled it and came across a Yahoo story where young people on social media are starting to use the term sticky sock vacation as a euphemism for mental health facilities where you are committed. They do that uh, because when you are committed to these mental health facilities, uh, you are apparently issued socks that have little grips on them. So we, we now have an entire genre of comedy, of irony, in a young, group, a young group of people that will say things like, I am just one bad event away from needing to go on a sticky sock vacation. Saying of their own mental state, I need to be committed. I further saw a statistic here that this, now the second leading cause of death for people between the ages of 15 and 24 is suicide. I could take you back to more studies I have given you over the years that this group of 25 and unders is the most medicated we've ever had, and not for physical sicknesses, but mental mental ailments, so depression, anxiety. We saw that we now have 20%, I'll say it again, 20% of Generation Z says that they are some other gender or some other sexuality. My generation, millennials, we were the, the high at 9%. This isn't um. This is obvious social contagion. This nobody. Even if you are a Darwinist, no one thinks biology works that fast. No one thinks there's a bottleneck of biological consequ- or uh, consequences or change where there's just massive change in a very little bit of time. Nothing happened to our bodies the last thirty years or or our genetics. We just have a mental health problem, and one of the ways it's manifesting itself is LGBTism. I was reading that story from Yahoo and some of these teenagers they were interviewing and the the term that kept coming up that was intriguing to me or discouraging to me was the world is scary. We we don't know what to do with this world. And sometimes it's as mundane as no one ever taught us how to change a tire, change the oil, uh, shop for insurance, what uh, what taxes are like, like, experiencing anxiety attacks, trying to get on TurboTax or go into H&R Block. Like, you can make, listen, you can make fun of them if you want to. I don't want to. I'm seeing a real problem. Now, granted, part of my thing here is I'm picturing two young men right now who are 19 and 18 years old that I had a part in raising, and I don't want that for them. And I don't, I don't see any of this in them, but I see it in their peers. And in my head right now, there's probably a dozen teenagers or about to be in their 20s at Beachwood Church that – I don't want this for them, and I see the next cohort behind them. I don't want this for them. I don't want them to need to be medicated or thinking about sticky sticky sock vacations or inheriting a scary world. I don't want any of that. So I'm not going to make fun of them. I'm trying to tell you right now we got a problem. I know that I have I, – before I started this segment, I counted. I think it's nine. At least nine regular listeners are youth pastors. I know you guys probably know this. I kind of want to talk to you. If you have time this week, gentlemen, get in touch with me. Uh, Shoot me an email, give me a call. I want to talk through what you're seeing. And then one last one I saw, just to build that there is a problem. 
the YouTube, Disney, Discovery, there was one more, the, uh, Nickelodeon, okay, that's it. The people that are producing content for your kids, they are finding your kids can't pay attention to scripted shows anymore. So if there's a script and a plot that has characters, that's the normal, it used to be 22 minutes for kids, they might be even shorter. Uh, your kids can't pay attention for five and six minutes. And so they're going all out on one-minute videos and one-minute sh uh, shows. That what we have done really with the smartphone revolution, putting, putting these things in their hands so early, is they can't pay attention from when a show starts and 10 minutes later to have a story arc. They just can't get there. They don't have the mental ability in mass. So now some of your parents are saying, not my kid. I didn't do that to them. Good for you. But some of you are parents and grandparents. You are aunts and uncles, and you go, yeah, I can see that. I got, I'm around a kid who cannot pay attention for even one minute. So we have all the data that says the, the kids aren't all right. So I want to give you, yeah, we'll do it before we take a break. We'll do both. Two things that I think are, are certainly the problem. Uh, one is obviously family disintegration. So some of that can't be undone. You're, all, you're listening to me right now and you say, yeah, I, I can't undivorce my spouse. Okay. Uh, some of you are involved in kids' lives and you say, yeah, I can't, I can't put their family back together. I got that. I understand. So while we have disintegrated families, I, I can't emphasize the church enough. I can't emphasize our willingness at, to in, as Christians to inconvenience ourselves to play father roles and mother roles and big brother, big sister roles to teenagers, to young people that don't have it. I won't say his name, but uh, I've even noticed that at the, uh, well, the young man at North Greenville who actually isn't a North Greenville student, so I somewhat safer, he has to come to campus for some things from time to time. And I, he doesn't have a terrible home, home situation, but the way that he gravitates to me is really obvious. He is looking for some influence. He's looking for some something to model what it looks like to be a man in the in the business world. What it looks like to be a man at work. So, some some days, guys, that's I'm trying to get my real job done, and I'll have four and five guys come in, and for no good reason, they're they're, they're students in North Greenville. Listen, if you guys are listening, I love you guys, but they'll just plop on down. They want to talk for a bit, and it, I don't know why. The, except that it's, it's it's sort of obvious that's what they're looking for. They're looking for some dude to follow, some some man to model after. So however you can build familial situations around young people, we, we need to. But two, so one problem one problem and solution is family disintegration and us trying to rebuild that. But two, the phones are a problem, guys. It means they can never escape. You know, if school was a bad situation for me, I guess it never was. But if it was, I could just come home and I could forget about it till the next morning. If school is a bad situation for them, it comes back with them in their pocket if they have these phones. Uh, if if I had the inclination to try to see some things I shouldn't see when I was 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, I couldn't have done it. I actually did not have access. I may have wanted to, but I couldn't have. Uh, there's nothing your kids can't get with your phones. And if you think your filters are, uh, your filter settings are good enough, they're probably not. They're probably not good enough for that. 
they find what they want. So you do what you want to in your house. Uh, but I think we got to get these ki- these phone these phones away from the kids until they are fill in the blank. 16, 17, 18 maybe. When it comes to the addictive properties, the access of things they have to them. I'll give you this one, uh, one very compelling stat for me. When I watch documentaries about the social media companies, often they'll have people on who used to work for Facebook, for Apple, for Google, and they left the companies because of the guilt they felt over just creating addiction machines. And they'll say it over and over again. Oh, no, my kid will never have a smartphone. My kid will never have an Android or an iPhone. Yeah, I mean, if they do, it's when they get out of my house. But no, I will never introduce that to their lives uh, because of what it's going to do to their attention span, their ability to be creative. Guys, you know, that's a big one. I've noticed it with the, young, <clears throat> the younger workforce. They're only getting less creative than, than, than my generation, probably the generation before me, because they didn't have to use their imaginations. They were constantly stimulated. You know, I, I think about my own childhood. I lived in my imagination, and it was a blast. And then the idea of a kid not even needing one, because const- we just constantly stimulate them with a device, a very powerful de- device with very smart and powerful people trying to keep them on the device, Yeah, we're, we're going to cause them some problems. So I, I don't know what the, the age is in your household, but I am, I am saying I can't imagine a good reason anymore to put a phone in the hand of a 9-year-old, 10-year-old. And I see it way too often. We're going to stifle their development personally because they're going to become – they don't know what it is to interact with someone in person. They're only going to interact with the screen. We're going, to, we're going to interrupt their ability to be creative. They're overstimulated. They're going to see things they shouldn't see. You talk about these people in the Yahoo story that say they live in a scary world. How do they know the world's so scary? Because we share with them every bad thing from around the country and then around the world in their phone. I think it's both. It's family disintegration. We've got to rebuild that. and I think we've got to take the phones away from the kids, guys. I think it's too much. I, I did not mean to do this for 20 minutes. I'm, I'm kind of sorry about it, but it's the thing most on my mind right now. So let me go ahead and take a break. We're way over. I'll shorten the next segment. I have some Matt Chandler audio I want to share with you, and then a tweet thread that made me think about the concept of American exceptionalism once again. We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I know we talk about it a lot. Do you ever find, though, that you join in the low simmer of anger and rage that marks our culture? If so, I got some sermon audio from one of the most gifted communicators in the faith I want you to hear in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and for a few more weeks, right here on His Radio Talk. Very quickly, as a reminder, the last time I'll be on the air will be the last Saturday in uh, in March, and then, I'm oh, sorry, yeah, wait, yeah, I'm right, the last Saturday in March, and then the podcast will continue on, it'll probably look different, it will look different in the future, uh, so follow along, me, look for me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you can also find me at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com if you have comments, I think I just want to go straight to the audio here, I listen to a lot of sermons, at least one per day, and uh, Matt Chandler of the Village Church in Dallas, Texas, was recently preaching through uh, something, I think they're calling it their Awake and Alive, Awake and Alive series. And I think this is some good discipleship. 
You know, it's it's the kind of thing that might feel weird in a sermon, uh, but it's it's prophetic, not foretelling, but foretelling. It's understanding the time in which you live and what your people are struggling with. Just really practical stuff. In specifics to how we interact with our technology, because I was thinking about that with the kids as well, but it's not just them, it's us. Our technology gets to us too. So I'm going to start and stop along the way. This is Village Church Pastor Matt Chandler, uh, and as he makes good points, I'm going to stop and elaborate on them. Here we go. Sure, I, I get my words right. We're in an overstimulated culture. Anybody? Just overstimulated, just constantly, bing, 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 just everywhere, right? Turn them notifications off, bro, right? It, like, just constantly bombarded. Well, in an over... Does that sound like anybody? Me? That sounds like me. My, my catchphrase is, don't let Apple... Not my catchphrase, but one of my catchphrases is, don't let Apple and Google and Amazon and like those companies, don't let them tell you what to think about. Turn off every notification you've got. I know you got a family, and so text messages and stuff like that, maybe you feel like sometimes your email maybe needs to be on. But you control you. Take every thought captive. You discipline yourself. Don't let your phone discipline and disciple you about telling you when to think about what. For stimulated culture, attention is the end game, not money. You can't get to money without attention. How can I sell you anything unless I get your attention and nothing gets your attention like anger and fear? Great points. So we're in now what's called the attention economy. We don't sell goods and services at the same level that we just sell your attention. We need your eyeballs on something. So whatever we got to do to get your eyeballs on something so I can sell you an ad or sell you something through, through ads, that's what we're going to do. Okay, well, what's addictive? What are the things that are addictive? Anger and fear. People will respond. I don't know why we're this way. I wish someone would do the study on it that we could figure it out. But we can watch a love story, and we're done with it. The only, actually, I think the only thing I've I've seen in at least one demonstration that's more dopamine effective is for some people. Uh, what are they called? Like you're, the soldier comes home from war videos. Like they and they surprise their kid at school. Like those can become addictive, and that's a positive. That's a positive emotion. And also dog rescue. I I can't watch those. They're too hard on me. When a dog is in real, real trouble, and then you get to see the transformation and the dog is taken care of, I can't handle the sad part, so I'll just skip forward four minutes and watch when the dog is happy and healthy. Those are apparently addictive as well, but if people aren't getting addicted to soldiers surprising their kid when they get home from overseas or the dogs being rescued video, they get addicted to things that make them angry or make them afraid. So the economy runs on rage. Nowhere... Is this more prevalent than social media? This is a quote from Oliver Berkman. He's an investigative reporter. Uh, he's written quite a bit on this idea, and I want you to listen to this. The algorithms of the attention economy relentlessly expose us to enraging stories and opinions for the straightforward reason that anger spreads more virally than other emotions. You hear that? Why do you know the most radical and crazy congresspeople because MSNBC knows its listeners want to feel good about themselves and so they'll show you a lot of Marjorie Taylor Greene and because Fox wants its listeners or watchers to feel good about themselves so they'll show you a lot of AOC this is the this is their reasoning not to make anything better it's because if you can just be angry if you can be enraged um, it's one of my big pet peeves when there is 
there's a bill put forward that no one's going to vote for. So I'll do one on the left and the right. On the right, it was in South Carolina here recently. Ah, I'm having trouble remembering the bill put forward. But it was it was crazy, and people on the left went nuts. For, went, went nuts. And then for some reason, someone on the left in some state was going to put forward a bill that made it illegal for your dog to put his head out the window when you're driving down the road. And actually, the entire internet went crazy about that one. And the bill was, was, the bill was withdrawn. But the bottom line is there's literally thousands of bills filed in 50 different legislatures across the, or 50 different states across the country, 99 different legislatures because Kansas is a unicameral state. You're going to get lots of crazy stuff and stuff that has no chance of passing. But Fox and the Wall Street Journal and uh, Daily Wire and The Blaze are going to report on some crazy left-wing stuff. And over the opposite, the, the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, basically everyone else is going to report on stuff that makes you enraged on the other side. None of them have any chance of ever happening. But you're addicted and you'll keep paying them attention if you can just get angry about it. I keep telling you this for years because here's what I want for all of us. Spit yourself out. Get yourself out of the rage machine. So you're more likely to click, like, share, and stay glued to Twitter or Facebook when you're furious. Tabloid newspapers and Fox News figured this out years ago. I wonder where he lands politically. But online, the diet of outrage, listen to this, can be customized precisely to include whatever drives you personally up the wall. Isn't that incredible? So specifically, let's say you find... Um, you don't find Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez particularly maddening, but you do find Rashida Tlaib stories more, more maddening. They'll figure that out pretty quick for how whether or not you click the story, whether or not you give it a particular reaction, the things that you share. And so they can customize to you. I mean, for, for you, it might be anti-gun stories. For you, it might be anti-abortion stories. Or, excuse me, pro-abortion stories. Whatever your thing is, Powerful algorithms are just trying to keep you riled up. That line there about you're more likely to stay engaged if you're furious. Can you hear that for one second? Let me slow down my pace so you can really hear what I'm saying. There are powerful, interested people, there are powerful people, very skilled, who have a great deal of interest in you being angry and staying angry. Their level of wealth is dependent on how much anger and fear they can manufacture. Know that the next time you grab your phone, people that are behind the writing of algorithms and rules for that device and the apps that you use, they want you angry and they want you scared. It's not so much that social media platforms are filled with, are full of bigoted trolls and idiots with harebrained opinions, although I'd argue there's quite a bit of that, but rather that however many there really are, the platforms are designed to ensure you can't avoid the ones that infuriate you the most. That's so powerful. I mean, I, I experienced that out here in the, the real world because I interact with a lot of people. And I can, t I can know for sure the world that a left-wing person thinks exists doesn't exist. The, the world that, because I live in that world hardcore. I live at a Christian university. And they, they would think that it's a racist, sexist hellscape. And I, I know everybody up there. We're not. It's fine. Everything's fine. We're not anything like you think you are. And listen to me. I know this is uncomfortable for some of you for, to hear it. There are, I think, confused people 
who lack a biblical worldview, but who love their spouse and want to see their kids do better than they did and want to see their neighborhood safer. That there's, there's a lot of those that disagree with you on whether or not there should be universal health care and think it is kind of crazy that 18-year-olds could have guns. Like, yeah, we have some difference of opinions, but largely, even if they have an unbiblical worldview, they're probably not Christians, th- that they're mostly normal. They're out there. That's actually the vast majority of us. The vast majority of folks that live here are just normal. But your phone, the apps you use, they do not want you to think that because then you won't panic and you won't come back to be, to be furious again because we get addicted to outrage. Here's more. So you've got life is hard, suffering is normal, Jesus is good and a culture that desperately needs to keep you angry, keep you frustrated, keep you on edge, keep you just kind of low-grade simmering. Our economic success in 2023 desperately needs you frustrated and angry. So you throw that together with, life's already hard, man. Things are already difficult. And now on top of that, I've got this problem that the, very, the, the moment in history I'm living in is perpetually trying to stir me up to anger and frustration, low-grade simmering and crazy outbursts. And it's into this space, it's into this environment that the Bible calls us to something different. It calls... And I hope you know what it calls us to. We're not those people. We're not panicked. We're the people of power, love, and a sound mind. We are those that, I love this quote, it's a, on, a, it's on a, a, piece, a, de- a decoration in my house. I trust the next chapter because I know the author. We trust in the sovereignty of God. We are not the people of panic and disorientation. You know, something he said there really struck me. Because I am a, I'm about as pro-capitalism as a Christian can be. Because I, I can see its excesses and where you might have to have some kind of curbing of the human, uh, the human condition, the fact that we're all sinners. And I've lar- I'm largely a big fan of capitalism because I've seen what it did do. It was the system that said, if you will solve a problem for humanity, you'll make a lot of money. And so it was a virtuous cycle. So the, the capitalist says, well, their trash needs to be dragged away. I'm going to start my private trash system. Well, they're going to need medicines, so let's develop them. Well, they're going to need electricity and running water. They're, they're going to want more efficient everything all the time. They're going to want better ways to get around and, and to travel, either through the air or they want their tires to last longer. They want their gas tanks to stay full longer. And it was all of this in, invention came from profit motive. And so our most educated, ambitious, and creative people use that profit motive to do great things for humanity. But when we move from the production economy, produce, so as a production economy, produce physical things that help people's lives be better. We move from that to produce things that distract people. And that's how you'll make your money. Produce things that will make them take their phone out of their pocket 200 times in a day. By the way, I saw a study that is the average American is 170. They touch their phone 170 times in a day, which means a lot of us, I don't think I would include me on this one, but a lot of people 
listening, if we were all in a room together, a lot of that group is grabbing their phone over 200 times a day. That's where the smartest people in the country went. They went to try to get you addicted to their apps. And so, I know this is becoming a fairly negative tech show. I don't, I'm not a, I don't want to do that. I'm not a troglodyte. I, I really, I'm a, I'm a techno-optimist. I think these are things that the Lord can use. I think it's part of the cultivation, uh, even Genesis mandate. Maybe all the wrong people are cultivating the technology uh, because everything has ethics, everything has morality. We're seeing that in the artificial intelligence as it continues to develop, the chat GPT thing. If you haven't used it yet, it's incredible. I think I might do some, some stories on that here soon. We need Christian thinking behind all of those. Even I, the techno-optimist, I'm just saying we have to live in the world as it as it is, recognizing its temptations. For our, our young kids, it's it's doing it's having its negative effects. We covered in the first segment, but for us, it wants you outraged and wants you fearful because it wants your attention. And so I'm saying this: say no. Tell Facebook, tell Instagram, tell, tell Twitter, tell YouTube, tell Google, tell Apple, no. You don't control me. You don't get my attention. And to go fill it up with something else. Or you know what? Use their use their devices against them. You're on YouTube, watch like five Bible project videos in a row, and YouTube will start feeding them to you. Use your YouTube to go start watching sermons and uh, and things that are actually going to be beneficial to you and watch those algorithms start feeding you more of that. You can do this. You can train your Facebook feed, your Twitter feed, your Instagram feed to give you stuff that's affirming of good, that you're you're not always reacting to that those things that make you angry. You can do it that way, or you can just turn them off and go do something else altogether. When we come back, there's a lot I want to do in our final segment. I'm going to try to get to our chronological Bible reading content. There's this thing I, I do want to talk about when we return. The first thing is about American exceptionalism because of a tweet thread that I saw. We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Revisiting one of the themes over the last, I don't know, 10 years of my show, 15 years of broadcasting, one of the themes, American exceptionalism, whether or not it's real, and how we should think about it even as Christians. We'll do that and a lot more here on the final segment of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Find me, your host, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also email the show at Show at gmail.com. I'm not wedded to the idea of American exceptionalism for the Christian. Um, I, I am wedded to the idea of, of, of truth and our thinking and our opinions comporting themselves with comporting themselves to whatever is true in history. I'd want that for every Christian in every country. And so I, I saw this dust up on the Twitters and wanted to comment on it. Again, this is not me trying to uh, push any kind of patriotism. I think there's a, there's a uh, can be a dangerous relationship. It doesn't have to be a dangerous relationship between the Christian and patriotism. You know, the, we have a, certainly a, a biblical view that nations are important. God set up nations in the table of nations in Genesis 11. The idea of border, borders and separate peoples are important, uh, that there would only be one force that unites all of humanity. That's Jesus, Jesus alone, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so uh, it is our our differences in part that glorify God, that there are different types of people groups. So borders are important, uh, countries are important, all, all that's true. And so every Christian in every 
country should recognize that. So again, there's a there's a complicated relationship between the Christian and patriotism wherever they live. I think in America it's been particularly difficult. And so I'm not trying to push patriotism right now, but I am trying to make sure we understand uh, the truth and how to how to articulate it, maybe think clearly through it. So over on the Twitters, uh, her name is Nicole Hannah-Jones. She did the highly ahistorical 1619 project for the New York Times. When I say ahistorical, I'm talking about people way, way left of me, super highly educated much more than I am, called out just the factual inaccuracies of the original 1619 project. It's mostly uh, fantasy. Uh, it's mostly incorrect and uh, just a it's a, a, a desire to rewrite American history for a political agenda. It is garbage through and through. And that's what Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote. She put out uh, here near the end of what a, the United States calls Black History Month. Here's the tweet. Someone asked me why black history specifically is being targeted. She's talking about black history being targeted in classrooms uh, for elimination. That's not really happening. But nevertheless, continuing with the tweet, she said, uh, it's because our history has always been political by definition. Our very presence on these lands is the greatest rebuke to the narrative of American exceptionalism. We give lie to the lie. So first, I want to respond to the thinking, and then she got a great response that gives us a better conversation. Uh, words ha have meanings, uh, and so exceptionalism, you, you need to think about what that means. If something is exceptional, it means it is the exception. There is a rule that largely governs a given conversation or, uh, or, or set of facts. There's the rule that most, most men are taller than women. There will be exceptions to that, but that's the rule. So when she says, our presence, she's talking about, about black Americans, presence on the lands is the greatest rebuke to the narrative of American exceptionalism. So she's talking about slavery ends American exceptionalism. That's actually the, the exact opposite. Slavery is the, is the rule for every, every society and every culture throughout history, with very few exceptions. That's the rule. The exception is actually what America ended up having as its idea from the time. So she's factually incorrect. The idea of slavery existing, it is a horrific sin, is not exceptional. It's normal, unfortunately, deeply unfortunately, for the human condition. Because the human condition is full of sin. and It's hard to think of much deeper sin than that. She got a response from someone named Z. Van Fleet, spelt X-I. I tell you the spelling because obviously of Asian descent. Z. Van Fleet tweets back at her, yourself and I, and I'm an immigrant from China with 200 borrowed dollars in my, in my pocket when I arrived more than 30 years ago, are the proof of American exceptionalism. I think she just said more articulately what I was just saying. What's actually exceptional about this place is that people not from here and not part of the majority culture can do so well here. Uh, I saw a stat recently that uh, Nigerians, Ni Nigerian immigrants to America recently overtook Indian Americans as our highest, our highest earning immigrant cohort. Now, granted, immigrants are a, they're, like we select who we let in a lot of times. And so when we're selecting Nigerians to be brought in and Indians to be brought in, it's often because we need what they're good at. Indian citizens are great at coming in and working in our sciences and computer tech, 
Nigerians the same way. They're more the more chemistry and biology, and so we import people who are going to get great jobs. But c- consider that for a second. The whole ca- Nicole Hannah Jones's worldview is this is a racist hellscape where no non-white person can achieve. Where the and what she's talking about is the rule. The rule worldwide is you don't let people in who don't look like you into your country. And if you do let them in, they work only the menial jobs and they do not get to uh, to, to upper echelons of power or income. We are actually the exception. That That is the definition of exceptional. Here's, uh, I'll give you the rest of Z Van Fleet and then I want to make one more point. She, qu- she tweeted one more time, natural rights are unique to the, to the American founding. That's true. Uh, rights... Were because we were coming out of the Dark Ages and then into the Reformation, rights were thought of as bestowed upon you by your king and your land. You don't. There are no rights for a human. It's just whatever the royals say you have. And it was Americans who came along and argued in the Declaration of Independence uh, that you, you are endowed by your creator with certain unalienable rights. So you're just born with them. You're just born with rights. No one ever gave them to you. You're born that way. Uh, then Van Fleet argues, because of natural rights, we were able to abolish slavery, abolish Jim Crow, and anti-Chinese, law, chan- anti-Chinese laws to allow individuals to succeed. What is not unique to America is slavery, which still exists in some places today. People fighting for human rights is what is exceptional. Not quite. I and mean, people fight for human rights all over the world. But we have been particularly successful, been really, really good at it. One other point I want to make about that. So... I'm not arguing for patriotism, but I am saying it's just true that we're exceptional in human history. Uh, the The United States project is really only rivaled in power by the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the the Ottomans. Uh, that the the bad parts are the bad parts of us are things normal worldwide and throughout time. It's the good parts that are exceptional. Uh, that or at least rare in human history. The final point, yeah, that's the final point I wanted to make. I think this just has to do with a good natured. I don't want to. I don't want to beat up on any given ideology. It's just a good-natured difference. And I think the two people need each other as long as, they're, as long as the two sides can be kind to one another and, in, and recognize the value in the other's perspective. People like me measure just about everything against the other existing options. We measure just about everything up against how bad it could be because sometimes we have seen how bad things can be in, in a lot of situations. And there's value for people like me for, to, to say to others, man, what we've got is incredible. Not just as a country, you can do that in your family, in your company, uh, and, and sometimes even in, in parenting relationships. You, you could look around at some things that aren't great, but recognize, man, what we've got is good in comparison to how hard things are in other places or in other situations. Then there's another set of people What's, that whenever they measure anything, they measure it against utopia. They measure it against perfection. And until utopia is achieved or perfection is achieved, everything is terrible. And while I think that's an unhealthy way to live, they, they also offer some value. Because people like me can fall into the rut of saying, well, that's good enough. I think, I think we've done good enough. Well, people like me need to be pressed to say, oh, 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 oh there's progress to be made. Let's keep going. Let's not stop there. But also, the people who compare everything to perfection or per, per, uh, per, uh, compare everything to utopia, they need to have said back, hey, 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 look at how far we've come. 
appreciate that. How exceptional that is. How rare it is in human history. And again, that's your country, but sometimes that is your your family. That's a that's a relationship. That's your business. You got to have both to to make sure you continue to make progress, but that you're not miserable the entire time you're making progress because things aren't perfect yet. So that was the cheat, the, the tweet exchange, and I thought the Van Fleet woman did a great job. She was I don't even think she came across aggressive. She just said it out loud, uh, really clearly. Yeah, of course this place is exceptional. Consider our stories. We are not majority culture here, and look at what we've been able to achieve. All right. Uh, man, I only have five minutes. Okay, so I missed, I'm now, uh, out of the last four weeks, we've only done our chronological Bible reading out of two of those. So I, I got to get back on track with this. So we started started really strongly in 2023, saying that every week on this show, we would talk about some Bible we would have read in the previous week, if we were reading the Bible chronologically this year. I got this idea from now an an in-law or a family member who is a pastor up in Spartanburg. At least that's what he's doing with his church, and I wanted to bring it to the show. So, if you were reading the Bible chronologically this year, uh, this week, you would have come through most of Numbers. Not all of Numbers, but you would have come through the book of Numbers. Huge fan of those five first five books of the, of the Bible, as we've talked about much over the first part of the year, there are just three things I could I could highlight a ton. I want to highlight three things for you in the book of Numbers that I think are helpful, if you would have been reading it this week. One, Numbers is a book of being in the wilderness. This is the people of God on their journey to promised land. So they've come over uh, Red Sea, I believe by this time they've come over the Jordan River, or that's maybe actually in numbers when they do that. Uh, They're being provided for in the wilderness, uh, what should have taken in the ancient world probably two weeks to walk. Uh, They they wander around for 40 years as a faithless and unbelieving generation dies off, and God creates a a believing and more faithful generation, uh, believing in the promises of God. In the book of Hebrews, that author compares the Christian life to the life in the book of Numbers. Says of us, he paints the picture, we are walking in the wilderness. We've had one promise fulfilled and are waiting on another. For them, it was the promise of getting over the Red Sea and out of slavery. Their second promise was to get into the promised land to be delivered into Canaan. We have, Jesus has come. We've That was our Red Sea, and we're waiting for him to come again. And in between, we live in the wilderness. And the wilderness is where your faith gets tested. The wilderness, the wilderness is where hard things happen. The wilderness is where you're going to have to decide if you actually do trust God's wisdom and sovereignty over your own, or if you're going to grumble and complain and not trust that what he's doing is best. This is one of the themes in the book of Numbers that you'll pick up. It's that question. Uh, your, your, te- your faith's going to be tested. Are you going to trust God? And then Hebrews says, that's your life. And some of you go, yeah, I know. Uh, seems like my faith's being tested all the time. But that's predicted. That is something we pull from from numbers. That's important. Two, it is a book where curses get turned into blessings. It's a book where things that the enemy of God's people wish for evil, God turns into good. It's one of my favorite Bible stories. I hope one, I hope one uh, two week period comes up where I can just teach the Balaam story. Balaam is into not a good dude. He is into witchcraft and he is into sorcery and he wants to or he's been hired to curse the people of God. But 
God won't let him. He only lets blessings come out of his mouth. And it's a it's, it's not a comical story, but it's very compelling about what God does with Balaam. It's actually the one where the donkey talks, if you know that story. And so while we know from Numbers it's a time of walking in the wilderness like we are now in between two events, it's also a time that while we walk in wilderness, our enemy will continually try to curse us. He will continue to try to knock us off our path to promised land, but what the enemy does, God continues to turn blessings. So when we are cursed, he turns them to blessings. So number is the book, you're walking in the wilderness, faith is tested, but while that's happening, God is turning cursing into blessing. And then my absolute favorite story from numbers to tell, especially to kids, because kids love stories about snakes, and I make a pretty good snake sound, and I can freak kids out pretty good when we do our children's ministry. There is the very compelling story, especially when you're a kid and you're freaked out by snakes, of the the snakes coming in and biting the God's biting God's people, biting the people of Israel, and they'd get very sick. Some would die, and as a remedy for that, God tells Moses to put this bronze serpent up on the, the staff, the stick, and all you have to do, you don't have to do anything but look to the snake, look to the serpent and you will be saved. It is a picture of, a pre-picture of Jesus on the cross that you you don't have to actually do anything because you can't do anything to undo what the snake did. You don't have a you don't have the power to undo the damage of the snake. This is analogous to sin. All you can do is look to Christ. All you can do is look to the, to, to, to look to the work that God did. God used Moses to put, uh, to put the snake up there. If you look to his work, that will save you. And that comes right to us. If you'll look to his work, you'll be saved from the thing that's killing you, and that is your sin. So that's what you would have gotten from the book of Numbers if you would have been reading it chronologically this week. Just a few more weeks of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk, but it will continue on the podcast. I will be back with another brand new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.